We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentators, Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. And tonight we'll be discussing the aftermath of the presidential and legislative elections. And we'll begin with a simple question of how President Tsai Ing-wen won re-election with such a landslide. That's 8.17 million votes for her and 5.52 million votes for her KMT rival Han Guoyu. So, was it Hong Kong? Was it China? Was it the failure of Han and the KMT to connect with the general public? Was it the economy isn't as bad as some would have us believe? Was it the DPP's policies? Or was it all of the aforementioned Ross and maybe some more or not the aforementioned at all? I think it's fair to say it was all of the aforementioned. So... Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, we have a lot of English speakers, Gavin, in the audience, and they read foreign media reports uh, or English language analysis from people here in Taiwan. And uh, so much of it focuses on on China and Hong Kong. And of course, those were were parts of, of uh, voters' considerations. But uh, as you said, I, I think it's more accurate to say that it, it is a range of issues. And I wouldn't even bother putting a percentage on it, like, well, how do we weigh, the, weight these? Was it 37% Hong Kong and 15% economy and 12% child care? I mean, what's the point, especially as the election's over, Gavin? So why, why bother speculating? But I'll just say that, yeah, I agree with you, Gavin. It was a range of issues, Hong Kong, China, economy, other types of, of government policymaking, uh, the, the strength of Tsai Ing-wen as a candidate, not necessarily as a president, because we know people have been upset with her, voters, the public, over the past three plus years and, and, and the performance of her administration. She's had to change her team multiple times. However, I, I would say the voters preferred her as a candidate and thus as a president. So when, when voters looked at Han Goyu's uh, performance as a candidate, not necessarily as a mayor, because he was mayor for such a brief period of time, uh, but, but as a candidate, um, somebody articulating uh, what they'll do over the next four years, whether it is on China or on the other policy issues. So I have to emphasize that again. Clearly, the voters decided that for the next four years, we'd rather have uh, Tsai Ing-wen as our president on the range of issues. So I'll just emphasize that again. So it's the full range of issues. It's not only China, Hong Kong. And I agree with that. Um, I think that Hong Kong, though, does bring up old issues in a new way. There's always the independence unification issue looming over any presidential election. This is the major split of the political cleavage, as people say in political science, between the DPP and the KMT. And so I think this came up again with Hong Kong. The DPP could use this as a talking point. And I think the KMT really miscalculated when it ran a list of uh, starkly pro-China candidates as its party list. This is usually not something that voters pay attention to, the party list. It's too much in the kind of the weeds of politics. But this time, people paid attention. That was actually a little surprising. Um, so that happened. I think the, the confluence of issues uh, there did lead to blowback against the KMT. The KMT, I think, they also miscalculated by running Han Guoyu, who seemed like initially a very popular, even populist candidate that could appeal to broad society, but then proved to be ineffectual regarding policy, unable to uh, do the basic things that a politician normally is able to do. And this led to backlash. That combined with the China issue. And so the DPP, sometimes one notes in the debates, it didn't actually have to 
really articulate policy. It could actually just kind of criticize Han, or or it could just bring up Hong Kong as a possible future that uh, to to avoid. And so I think I think this did lead to a tie victory for that reason. I think Brian has made one of the mistakes that's common in English language analysis about this election, which is to say that the the Kuomintang, whether it's the presidential candidate or their legislative at large can, legisl, legislator at large candidates, are pro China. Obviously, these people are pro unification in some kind of theoretical, hazy way. They're obviously against separation in a formal way. So they're obviously against changing the country's name to the Republic of Taiwan, getting rid of the old con- or the current constitution and creating a new constitution. So clearly, because I mean, these are all basically kind of 92 consensus people. So uh, to say that they're pro-China, you know, as if like they they support China China's policies against the United States, for example. I, I, I don't think there's evidence, evidence of that. Uh, clearly, though, the voters didn't like their hazy unification down the road. Let's keep the Republic of China uh, for now. Uh, you know, we don't want to battle against China. We want to talk to them. I mean, that, yeah, I'm not denying that. that that's their position. I, I, but I, I, I would, I think, in the interest of clarity. It's not accurate to say they are pro-China. I mean, they're not pro-Taiwan uh, being swallowed up by China tomorrow, notwithstanding the scare tactics of certain commentators and obviously uh, pro-government media and certain pro-government-connected politician, uh, uh, politicians, uh, just like the the f- spokeswoman of, of the presidential campaign team for, for President Tsai, who had to quit just days before the election when she said, you know, kind of having a, a pro-unification, you know, just basically a trade traditional Kuomintang position is the equivalent of, Brian, what did she say? She called it treason. Yeah, um, right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, credit to the DPP. They were able to manipulate that, uh, the wording. And Brian, I think you fell, fell into the trap. Uh, it does work for as far as getting votes. So again, credit to the DPP. Uh, I, I don't think it accurately describes the, the Kuomintang position, though, to say that they are pro-China. However, they were so inept that it doesn't matter if it was the presidential spokes, presidential campaign spokesperson or Brian on ICRT saying that. Clearly, the voters came to believe it. Um, I mean, just uh, this brings us to another topic that we were going to talk about. But I mean, their number four candidate on the party list literally was someone that is saying on Chinese television, this is how you defeat the ROC and the U.S. military. I think those comments were taken out of context. He explained that. Uh, but again, his explanations didn't um, didn't make the public feel any better. I mean, if you watch the whole interview in the context in, when, in which that question was asked, it was a, it was a, a long conversation about military tactics. And, and I mean, the KMT also. You're, ta- you're taking is, like is, you're taking like a five second sound sound bite out of context, out of a long interview. But again, I think the uh, I mean, it's good that you mention it because it, it still establishes the same point which is the ineptitude, the incompetence, whatever word you want to use, of not just the Han campaign office, but also the Kuomintang party headquarters as well, and, the, and just the failure to support their candidate. And you want to contrast that, say, with uh, uh, the U.S. presidential election in 2016, where once Donald Trump became the candidate, and we know it was it was a tough primary. A lot of people say he's not really a Republican, stuff like that. But the Republican headquarters then came to support Donald Trump 100 percent, you know, the whole party apparatus. And they did it in a good way. They got him elected. Right? I'm not going to say whether or not you like him or don't like him. Uh, but uh, the Kuomintang the headquarters you know, just didn't do a good job helping their candidate win. I mean, they may have verbally say, oh, yeah, we love Han. We're supporting him. But when it came to, again, this issue of, of persuading voters about what the Kuomintang positions are, the other side was making the message. And you cannot win an election when the 
when you let the other side make the message. So again, to use U.S. politics, 2016, the Republicans, whether it was Trump or the Republican Party headquarters, they they created the message of who Hillary Clinton is, you know, that she's corrupt and lock her up. Four years earlier, 2012 election, the Obama campaign created the message of who Mitt Romney was. They said, uh, you know, he's just this rich guy. He's he's, you know, he's going to throw everyone out of work and help all his his rich friends. Um, so the, the Guomindang just let the DPP make the message of who Hong Yu is. And uh, part of my language, Gavin, they got their butts kicked. Well, Brian, do you think the the, 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 the KMT failed abysmally to control the message, as Ross was basically saying there? I think they did lose control of it, uh, particularly compared to 2018. The messaging around Tan was a little tighter. I mean, Tan actually, I think he did improve as a candidate between 2018 and, and this year in the sense that he did become more experienced in actually debating policy. Whereas in, in 2018, notably during mayoral debates, he could not even name basic facts about the neighborhood he lived in. And so that, that improved on his part. But then the KMT uh, tried too much to appeal to ROC nationalism and traditional values and so forth, when actually what they needed, I think, was to continue 2018, in which uh, Han was seen as an unorthodox candidate uh, able to appeal to young people through social media and viral messaging and so forth. And they kind of, I think they did not succeed this time. I think they also could not rally uh, enough of their base behind Han. There's notable splits within the KMT with, for example, Rousseau Yen or Hoyoi not exactly really wanted to campaign for him at points and then later on doing so. And so I think I think Han was a, a weak candidate in that sense. Uh, Han does have his loyal base, which is very ideologically devoted to him, but that doesn't translate into support from the society, society writ large. And I think that a lot of times... Um, he was focused on attacking Tsai and her record regarding pension reform or claiming that's the DPP, which will cause one country, two systems to be realized in Taiwan, uh, trying to draw a distinction between the notion of the 1992 consensus uh, and one country, two systems. But this was not actually successful. I think that he just his rhetoric was not sharp enough. And so uh, he also just was a candidate that faced too many scandals. He had too many skeletons in his closet, which sometimes would not always affect him. I mean, he literally was someone that ran for office and won despite there being a manslaughter uh, incident in the past, for example. But uh, but just all these corruption scandals do contribute to the, the view of him as inept, uh, ineffectual, uh, just a regular traditional politician, not actually so different as a regular politician in the way that in 2018 he was able to project this unorthodox image that I'm a break from the status quo. The big difference, the big difference Gavin, with 2018... And it's interesting, and Brian Brian mentions this, and it's definitely worth talking about that. You know, that first of all, those were local elections, as we all know. So Hang Yu or Hoyoi or Lu Xiulian Taichung, you're just talking to that local audience, and, and you're you're going up again one on one against your opponent in that in that very local you know, limited setting. So uh, Hang Yu compared to Chen Shi Mai, I mean, we you know, we have to admit this. We've talked about this many times on the show because, uh, and, and I'm glad Brian didn't make the accusation. You know, Brian just you know. Viral social media, Han was very good at that. You know, so it wasn't like China brainwashed the voters in Kaohsiung in 2018. You know, I, I, I don't believe that thesis. It's just that voters looked at Han Yu versus Chen Mai. Who do we want to be mayor? And you say, well, you know, Chen Mai is a bit, he's a bit bookish and, and, and you know, he tells you like, you know, an hour <laughs> so worth of, hour worth of pos- But, but Brian, that, that's exactly the point. That worked in the municipal election. It didn't work in a national election with, di- with a different set of issues, whether it's China or all the other issues, the economy and, and education policy and childcare, where, you know, in the city election, you're basically saying, oh, I'll keep the streets clean and I'll try and bring in some more tourists. And then you say, okay, Chen Chi Mai, what are you going to do? And he went on this long kind of speech and was saying, that's not what we want in, in a mayor. So you know, very different. You know, we really shouldn't compare the two and why Han was so successful or why Lu Xuyen won the election in Taichung or Hoyoi in New Taipei City. And another important point 
in kind of talking about 2018 versus January 2020 is the party headquarters had no role, right? So, so Guomindang party headquarters had almost no role in the success of those Guomindang candidates in the counties and the cities that they won in 2018. It really was it was individual based, right? Hang Yu won, or Lu Xiuyan won, or Ho Yi won, or the other counties uh, because of the strength of those individuals as candidates versus their opponent. Had nothing to do. And people said at the time, you know, like Wu Dodi was saying, oh yeah, I helped win the election. People were like, what are you talking about? You did nothing. It's because of the individuals and, and the weakness of their their opponent. I mean, Lin Jiao Long lost because uh, you know, people were, were kind of fed up with the pollution and frankly you know he came across as a bit arrogant uh, and there were a number of incidents to, to establish that uh, so he was thrown out I mean you know to be thrown out as an incumbent mayor that's a huge embarrassment again nothing to do with China influenced the voters of Taichung and had nothing to do with Wu Doni or KMT party headquarters helping Liu Xiulian and, and so you know, headquarters was irrelevant in 2018 but in a national election you needed headquarters. You needed them to effectively support the candidate. Part of that, as you know, as Brian mentioned, was was the, the legislators at large list, and it completely backfired. I mean, that that was not Han's fault. Uh, the only, the thing you could blame Han on that is Han probably and his team. So it's not just Han as an individual. They should have been more attuned to this at the early stage, not after the list came up, right? I mean, Han should have been talking to Wu behind closed doors, just the two of them said, look, look, dude, look, Mr. Chairman, I'm running for president. So when you come up with this list of at-large candidates, it needs to be complementary to my campaign. You can't just go off and lock yourself in a room and come up with a list, which is basically what Wu wound up doing. And then, you know, as we've been talking about it, completely backfired and came to hurt hurt the presidential campaign as well. So it's just, maybe that's just one more example of, of the weaknesses, you know, the organizational weaknesses of the Han campaign. Right, and Brian, of course, before the election, there was concern, much written about, much talked about, about Chinese interference in the election. And, of course, the, the, the vote count after, it didn't really look like that to me personally. But do you think that there's now concern about the, maybe the over overestimating how much China was trying to manipulate the elections and how this could affect future elections with people possibly being dismissive? of China's attempts to interfere in the island's elections. So here's the interesting thing, I think, about uh, Chinese election interference. It exists. There's efforts to influence public opinions through social media, but sometimes it is not so good right now because I think oftentimes it's very easily you can read actually that this is Chinese propaganda because the way I think mainland Chinese talk is very different than Taiwanese and they're not so good at faking it sometimes. Uh, for example, there was a, uh, a supposed video series, people are posting videos of themselves declaring who they would vote for and the hashtag uh, recently. And the hashtag was, it just does not read like Taiwanese uh, Chinese. <laughs> and so there's that issue. And that was very obvious. And so I think eventually, as China's efforts at disinformation become more sophisticated, you will turn towards, for example, getting Taiwanese people to actually write the scripts and, and do this kind of thing, because then it reads much more natural. And so that's the question. Will, uh, because right now, as it is now, a lot of it is dependent on, uh, for example, overseas Chinese, or things are being produced in China, and just uh, cultivating kind of local collaborators. That's what actually China needs to work on. I mean, I think that um, uh, you also then do have the bigger issue that this fake news, a lot of its attempts to, uh, it takes a form of internet memes or it's attempts to steer the discourse. It's not really creating fake information that's completely wrong. It's trying to spin things and create a narrative. And so this is actually, it's very hard to uh, somebody's point out where the concrete effects of it are. Uh, I, feel, I feel like Brian is completely walking back from the narrative that we were told through the through beginning in the period before the 2018 local election. So kind of in, in, in the summer and the fall of 2018, 
all through 2019 is, oh, China, China, you know, all these commentators all think they're so brilliant in, in, in Taiwan or outside Taiwan saying, like, oh, China. Yeah. And where I say like Brian's, it feels like Brian's walking back. The narrative is the narrative was not as Brian just described it that, oh, well, you know, you could obviously tell they're from China because, you know, they're writing in, in, a, in a style or a grammar or syntax, vocabulary choices used in China. That's not what the narrative was, guys. The narrative was is that China, you know, through manipulating people in Taiwan, buying off people in Taiwan, writing comments on social media that look like they're from Taiwan, all this fake news and disinformation. The narrative was not that, oh, it's obvious people in China. Because, look, and I've been saying this ever since the local election. You could tell, you know, and Brian just just you know confirmed that again. You could tell when when people write comments on 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 YouTube page that they're from China. They're not, they're not trying to hide it. And these might be netizens. That's not necessarily the, the 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 national you know the government apparatus of China. So there's been this failure to distinguish between netizens in China spouting off on whether it's Taiwan politics or their their hatred for Donald Trump um, or, or real kind of you know efforts to to buy off people in Taiwan to spread disinformation and fake news and, and it just doesn't seem to have happened in any way and, and and I'll just say it again because I've said it so many times on your show Gavin if it happened Show us the evidence, please. I, I welcome it. Prosecute people. Hunt every person down who's working for China in Taiwan. Throw them in jail. Um, you know, give them fifty lashes. Waterboard. Whatever you're going to do to them. I, I, no, unfortunately, we don't do those things anymore. Uh, but but just give them the punishment. Hunt them down. Arrest them. Prosecute them. Expose them. But it just hasn't happened in any appreciable numbers. Just, I mean, it, it almost hasn't happened at all. You know, you find like you know the only prosecution you get is like the tourist agency that that. You know, fake the visa application or the purpose for for visits by by Chinese people. But Brian, I mean, obviously, Rossi has the counter argument there, but do you think the counter argument is part of the fake news syndrome because it simply divides people? I think um, that's one of the attempts with fake news, and I think that also what's more important is that traditional media outlets in Taiwan on the Pan Blue camp are known, have been reported now and widely at this point, to take money from China directly or even take direct orders from the Taiwan Affairs Office, which calls up newspapers on a daily basis and has editorial, uh, say in editorial direction, which articles get placed on the front page and so forth. Has this been so, proven in court? Uh, it's been reported on by mainstream, on well-respected media outlets that are not actually from Taiwan. But they're speculating. That is all speculation. Saying, I talked to an unnamed source. What, what I talked to an unnamed source. Them? at a newspaper who said and, and understandably the, the media organizations they sued so the because these are all because, un, 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 uh, the, the interesting thing then is that actually the Tsai administration is not it will not actually pursue this very hard because it does not want to be accused of being undemocratic of persecuting political opponents it's an effective charge in Taiwan no but these things it, are illegal they have to pursue it it's the law it is, but then the thing is that actually, if you look at the punishments from the, for example, the anti-infiltration bill, they are fairly minimal. They're not actually really going to prevent people from uh, engaging in disinformation efforts or doesn't matter. In China. They said we need to pass this law. So now, it's, now it that it's law, I, I, I say use it. You have to use it. You can't pass a law that you say like we urgently need this law to be passed two weeks before the election, or no, which, two weeks. An election and then not, and then now, Brian, you're saying, oh, we don't really need to enforce this law. Uh, but I think I think I think politicking is is simply that. That's what it is, though. That oftentimes you do have people passing laws or saying they will do something, but it's actually 
actually really just intended for the election. I mean, the way you, it's like, you think that's good. That's good practice I don't, for I don't, democracy. I don't, I don't think it's a good practice for democracy, but that is one of the flaws of democracy. That this is oftentimes how it ends up with electioneering, and so then the end result is that ineffective policy is passed just in order to score easy points and to win votes, and that then this issue is not addressed actually. And so I think this is still actually an issue. Sounds like you're talking about some country in in, in a part of the world where they don't really have rule of law. Democracy. So that's, that's exactly why the Taiwan nation doesn't want to do that because the fact is there's this precedent. Taiwan only has so many democratic transitions. There is precedent for past presidents being arrested, for example, after leaving office. And so really going after your political opponent, the other major political party in this way, even if they are actually aiding a foreign power, will get you this accusation that you have uh, uh, allowed for this authoritarian regress. This no, regime. but this is not going, about going after a political party. This is going after individuals, right? Because you know, the narrative has been, uh, you know, there's so many individuals who are on the take for, for China. They're spreading disinformation. I mean, the one, the most notable example of this completely blew up on the government. And again, this shows the ineptitude of the Gomidag because they weren't able to uh, really es- explain this clearly to the public is is the, the typhoon in Japan. And, and uh, you know, we now know that the people spreading the, the disinformation were actually pro-DPP people. Well, that's a claim by the, the KMT. And it's, it's, it's not a claim by the KMT. It's the prosecutors. They arrested the person. Uh, that's true. But then the, oh, the thank KMT you. That's is... True. The, thank you, no, uh, the, the KMT was actually placing bounties on people without due process, saying that, oh, if you find this person who is wherever they are, we will pay you such and such amount of money. And so that this, this actually is that rule of law. It defies due process uh, principles such as innocent until proven guilty. It doesn't actually allow for the case uh, to, to be settled. And so, I mean, I, these accusations are still unclear. I think it's still unsettled. I don't know what's going on there. It's used on a, as a point by electioneering. But I mean, the KMT illustrates this disregard fundamentally for democracy when it actually just is taking out bounties on people, similar to what the chief executive of Hong Kong is saying. And that's where we'll leave it here on the first half of this week's Taiwan This Week. And we'll be back after these important commercials with more heated debate. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now we'll move on from why the DPP won the election and did China meddle in the election to looking at the losing party, that being the KMT, which is now looking for a new chairperson after Udini resigned this Wednesday to take responsibility for the election loss. Now the KMT has so far said that it will elect a new leader on March the 7th. Now the current Acting chairman is the Central Standing Committee member Lin Rong De. Now he's called his appointment has caused a bit of controversy because he is belongs to a group that allegedly supports unification with China. Now, of course, after the election, as soon as it before the election was even called, members of the KMT who were younger than the current leadership were demanding reform within the party. And apparently, Lee Rongdeur's appointment as acting chairman hasn't well, they don't really like it very much at all. Now, so Brian Udini resigned. They need a new chairman. They put a chap in there as acting chairman who looks a bit iffy on paper. If you're not an older member of the KMT that's looking at the election results in a certain way, and they're calling for reform, the younger generation, saying maybe we should review the 1992 consensus and possibly even change the name. And of course, President, former President, rather, Mine Joe came out on Thursday and said, well, yeah, maybe we could look at the 1992 consensus. Yeah, and so actually I was there outside of KMT party headquarters while 
watching these kind of young people protest. And eventually there were scuffles outside and fights and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, there was someone declaring that Hangul should run for chair. And so I think this points to the kind of current power vacuum within the KMT. Who is it? Is that as a party heavyweight? Who is it that will become the next chair? I mean, there's precedent for a failed presidential candidate becoming the chair of the KMT, as you see with Hong Xiuju, who then as chair declared that she was in support of immediate unification with China, and that didn't really work out with the public. But then I think also whenever now in the past uh, few years, uh, whenever the KMT experiences electoral defeats, one observes the young people in the KMT calling for reform and change. And usually what happens is then the party establishment uh, will somewhat shrug them off, or they will be accused of being uh, pan-green infiltrators that have been corrupted by Wang Jingping and his whatever pro-Taiwan secret political views. And that this cycle has happened again. It's actually most of the same people. For example, Albert Lin, also known as Lin Jiaxing, the former head of the KMT youth uh, section or core, however you want to translate it, he was one of the people that raised this, this issue. Um, and in the past, some of the young people were actually sort of driven out of the KMT when they called reform. Uh, they were later brought back into the party on the initiative of Ma Ying-tio, actually, who I think was, as among KMT politicians, much more conscious of the need to groom a next generation and get try to track the youth vote and, and that kind of thing. Um, but it's still a question. I don't, I don't actually really see the party changing, and whoever picks the chair, I think uh, there will continue to be internal contention, struggling for power. I think it's a bit odd that the Kuomintang is, is rushing into a, a leadership election. I, I mean, they clearly need to do some internal uh, reorganization and obviously discuss their policy direction, and not, not only on China relations, but other policy issues as well. Um, so if, by rushing into a leadership uh, election, you know, in the next seven weeks, I mean, it's it's so rushed. They're they're just hurting themselves. I mean, they, it's just not enough time, especially with Lunar New Year in the middle, uh, to to really pick the right person. And 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 I think they'd be better off if they went a little slower and try to figure out some of these policies. Because what's going to happen is they'll, they'll, a new chairman will be selected, and then as chairmans typically do, they'll they'll staff up the organization with their own people, um, and, and they'll set the direction, I wouldn't say dictatorial fashion, um, but but they'll have pretty broad control. And, and you know, as Brian also mentioned, you know, we see a lot of the, the same things just happen over and over again with, with the Kuomintang, and, and there might be no political party in the world that has a history of, you know, killing itself the way the Kuomintang does. Um, and, but, but they still seem to survive, oddly enough, as well. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't expect much big change. I mean, the Kuomintang is not going to, on March 7th, announce, like, we have a new China policy, and tomorrow we're selecting our chairman. And they're yeah. going to change the flag pink. Uh, well, <laughs> let's change it green. We, maybe maybe they can mix mix them up, uh-huh. mix them up. But like a rainbow flag. Uh, yeah, it's not happening. Um, but uh, you should, maybe each uh, each ray of the sun could be a different color on, on the logo. But uh, uh, all everything we're talking about just just shows the problems of of, of the gloaming dog. It's unlikely that they're going to solve these in the next two months. We should also keep in mind, though, that uh, notwithstanding this terrible election result for the Kuomintang, they still have a bunch of legislators. In fact, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Gavin, I think they got a couple more than they had before this election. Yeah, they did, yeah. And so uh, we, we should approach that the same way as what transpired over the last four years. So a minority 
no way to control the agenda. You still have some rights as, as a party caucus with th this many members. So you still have some rights to interpolate and ask questions and make government officials uncomfortable. And, and we should also keep in mind, as much as we might dislike the Kuomintang, that that is still good for democracy. So whether it's the Kuomintang or, or now the, the, the Taiwan People's Party or um, new power party. Uh, it's important that the the legislature is not is not all from one party. So it's good that there are other parties there, and um, we can't say that all the Guomindang legislators are are just total losers. I mean, there there's definitely sub who understand the role of of being in opposition and asking questions about the operation operations of government. And uh, not everything they do in the legislative end is arguing about China policy. So sometimes there are legitimate questions about uh, how government operates, budgets, uh, uh, incompetence, corruption. And um, not only the Kuomintang, but uh, at least for the last four years, the New Power Party was fairly effective playing that role as well until we learned that one of their legislators had some questionable conflict of interest dealings and they had to kick her out. <laughs> but it, 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 So the Gomidak still has to play that role. And obviously they still have the, the local uh, leadership um, as mayors or county executives, as well as city councilors. And then for what it's worth, uh, uh, Lee Jongs, the borough chiefs um, who, who also come from the Gomidak. Uh, we, you know, we don't have to get into a, a discussion about like their local patronage, patronage networks and, and all those kinds of details. Uh, but but they still have elected officials, and, and it's it's a minority, but it's still – well, uh, at the national level, it might be a minority, but the local level, it's still a majority. So uh, they, they need good leadership. Uh, I'm just very pessimistic that they'll find it within a short period of time. So, Brian, who is good leadership for the KMT? Eric Jew, Hoyoe, Hangoyu, and Joshi Wei's name has been mentioned. Of course, the former head of the <laughs> Taipei County. And, of course, Ma Ying Zhou has also been name has come up in talk of who could lead the party. Um, that's right. And so I think the question then is, do you try to go with someone that's been around for a while and try to restore the party to a past state? I think that's what it was attempted with Udwini, who's a political veteran. Or do you try to bank on someone new, someone unpredictable, that could potentially change the party in a way that will allow for future electoral successes? I mean, one possibility is to have Han become the next chair, and that's that's come up uh, many times because of the fact that he is he still has a devoted following. And there's a precedent for, again, former presidential candidate becoming uh, that doesn't succeed, becoming party chair. Um, then you have uh, people that are, are kind of been around the block a while, and it's uh, being uh, their names are floated again, and mind you that his name has come up so many times, and that uh, despite being a former president and former party chair, people want him to kind of take the reins again. This is this points, I think, again, just the the question of like there's no successive leadership, and so perhaps banking on someone like Hoyo is, I think, a better choice just because he is newer, a fresher face, and could potentially turn around the image of the party. I mean, he did make inroads on other um, not just ideologically pan blue people in his mayoral run, and so I think that he has he has that benefit. I mean, even in the past, the DPP was trying to recruit him. So there's that. So, Ross, if you had to get your crystal balls out and stick them on the table in front of us and tell us who's going to be the next KMT chairman, who would it be? I don't have crystal balls, Gavin. You know that. but uh, uh, I don't, actually, <laughs> no. Uh, the problem with Hoyo E, as effective as he might be, as as a, a leader, and I think he, he's 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 an okay mayor. He's his his experience as a, a police officer, uh, rising up to the leadership levels of of the police apparatus, gave him a lot of experience with managing people and and managing bureaucracies, which a lot of politicians in Taiwan actually lack before they transition into politics or before they transition from being a city councilor or legislator to a, a county executive or a mayor or a minister. Uh, so I, I think. 
it's fair to say he's been an effective mayor, but the, the problem is, and, and Brian, I'm kind of surprised that you would even suggest his name. You know, he's, he's, he's not young. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really be a, a, a new face per se. It's, it, it's a little hard to imagine him turning things around uh, broadly. If he became the chairman, it would probably be for purposes of just like Wu Doni thinking, okay, I'm going to be the presidential candidate. That's why I'm going to take on. I mean, what, otherwise, why would you take on the job at this point in time? I mean, you want to be the guy who, uh, if you take this job, then you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be the guy who saves the party. I will be the presidential candidate. I'm going to work really hard as both mayor and as uh, party chairman so I could be the, the presidential candidate in 2024. But then he's got this problem is he's got to run for re-election in 2022, or he'd have to decide, well, I'm not going to run for re-election. I'm just going to run for president. And uh, my guess is, yeah, you want my crystal balls, uh, Gavin. My guess is, is that he hasn't really thought that through yet. And so, okay, you got to you got to decide like the next couple of days or weeks, whether you want to make all these long-term decisions. He might, he might not have made that. And to be fair to him, maybe he just doesn't want to make those decisions. You know, so, uh, you know, bringing back a, a Julie Williams, like, well, gosh, he's been party chairman. He lost as a presidential candidate in 2016. He lost the primary in 2019. The record there is is not very good. Uh, and then again, if he became party chairman, everyone's going to say it's for the purpose of running for president. Again, like, do we really want Julie Lund running for president again in 2024? <laughs> Does he have any chance of, of beating whoever the DPP uh, puts forward at that time? He, he, yeah, it would be really, really tough. Uh, so if, if it's one of these people who's been around before, whether it's mine, Joe, or Julie, uh, they, they could take on this job. But uh, I, I, I would hope for their sake, and if the party has any hope of coming back as a political force, they'll, they'll need to say, like, I, I'm just doing this temporarily. I'm going to do it for um, a year or two or through the local elections in 2022 or, or I'll do it for the next 12 to 15 months. But then someone else has to come in in advance of the local elections and take on the leadership role, you know, six, eight months before the local election. So that person uh, could be the, the the person who leads the party into the local elections. And then they'd have the option of staying on because we have to keep in mind that just like the, the most recent cycle, the period from the local election to the national election is short, right? It's only 14 months. So whoever leads the party into the local election in 2022 has to be prepared to lead the party into the national election in 2024. So if you say, like, do we really want Eric Drew or Ma Injo to be that person? The answer is probably not. And Brian, could they think out of the box? Maybe Jason Shu, former lawmaker? Um, Johnny Jung, I think or actually, maybe Jung went on. I actually think that's the issue, that uh, sometimes there are very capable younger people within the KMT, but they don't get promoted fast enough. And I think there's this kind of lack of long-term thinking that you do have to groom these people up. Um, whenever, actually, they do try to go with someone younger, then there's controversy that this person is not experienced enough. They have not worked their way through the party hierarchy to reach the top and, and that they're undeserving, therefore, of this role. And I think this really plays into one of the KMT's difficulties in reforming. And so I think I think that's the question. I mean, again, just uh, we do – it is definitely true that whoever becomes the next chair of a KMT should be in uh, selected with longer-term planning in mind as to who is going to run for president and so forth. But I also just don't see the KMT as having the party consensus or individual politicians wouldn't put aside their personal interests for that. I mean, there's too much of the precedent of people running for positions such as chair or presidential candidate and being elevated from obscurity to superstardom. Han Goryeo is a great example. Hong Xiuju is another. And so I think there will be kind of ambitious people that are actually not very well-known, throwing their hats in and trying to make a lot of noise and hoping that this will get them attention for a future political career. And I think this might actually tear the party apart in some sense. 
Uh, I, I'm surprised that Brian even thinks that the, the, there's a future political career for someone in the Gomindai. It sounds like you think they still have a chance to, to come back as, as a, a party that could get people elected. Maybe they do. Uh, the, the problem with some of these other uh, individuals, these younger individuals, is not necessarily pushback from older people or, or other pressure points or power centers within the party because those other power centers or pressure points are, are dealing from a very weak position right now. The, the, I think the question is, just like we were talking about with Hoyoe, is do they want it? I mean, if you're, you're Johnny Chang, who's, who was just reelected as a legislator in his constituency in Taichung, seems to be well-liked um, by, by the public, uh, comes across as a very articulate, reasonable guy. Like, do you want this at, at this time? And, and then say, okay, why are you taking it? And then are, are you going to be, are you taking it because you really want to lead the party all the way through the next three to four years through the local election and the national election? Or are you going to take it and say, no, I just want to be a transitional figure. I'm just stepping in at the time that the, the party is, is at this low point, but I only want to do it for, for a year or two. Uh, you know, who knows whether or not uh, Legislator Chiang has, has thought thought this through. Uh, you know, Jiang, Jiang Wanan, you know, the, the challenge for him is, is, I would say, not so much the baggage that comes with his his family heritage of, of uh, being descended from Jiang Jingguo and, and Chiang Kai-shek. It, it's, is he going to run for mayor in 2022, as, as people uh, seem to speculate that he's really the logical Kuomintang candidate? And if, if his heart and his, his expert advice that he's getting uh, tells him to run for mayor in 2022, um, then you probably don't want to be party chairman now because you could run for mayor without being the party chairman. Right? He's, he's not helping his cause as mayor. It's a little different. You were talking earlier about the difference between local elections and presidential elections. So somebody takes on the party chairmanship, then it might be because they want to control that apparatus for purposes of, of winning the nomination uh, for president. But uh, to be mayor, if, if, if Jiang Wanan asked me, I, I say, look, dude, if you want to run for mayor, you probably don't want to be party chairman. Anyway, before we go today, medical professionals here in Taiwan say that people suffering from post-election stress syndrome need to take their mind off the election with some form of distraction, like engaging in sports or taking part in leisure activities. Now, apparently, according to medical professionals here, the disorder actually exists and it can include being unhappy or angry about everything. So, Brian, we've just spoken for nearly 40 minutes about the election. Are you unhappy and angry about everything? And do you have post-election stress syndrome? I don't know. I actually wonder if I do because I feel like just uh, I, I feel almost the sense of uh, having run a marathon and just then suddenly being like, oh, now what do I do with my life? Because after you know, it's oh, a lot of work. Oh, enough! Apparently, feelings of hopelessness or dread. Oh, that are sounds also that sounds a lot like syndrome. me. Generally, uh, those are my main uh, emotions, I think. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just a lot of stress after the elections, despite the fact that I sh everything should be done in terms of work and and I can take it easy. Now it's like, what do I do now with my life? Sport. Uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not too athletic, so oh, I think right. I'd probably just injure myself. Yeah, I was, try I was trying to imagine you running a marathon, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just There wouldn't be work. much Brian no, left. No. He, he, does, he does have a black belt. I do. I actually do go. have a black belt. So be careful. So go out, go, go beat up some Gomindong supporters, Brian. Um, then I think I would get arrested then. Uh, you you, you just said earlier in the show that you know, there are a lot of laws that don't need to be enforced when it comes hmm, to true, po political true. activities. That's right. <laughs> so, Ross, post-election stress syndrome. Do you have post-election stress syndrome, or do you just generally have election stress syndrome or all the time stress syndrome? Gavin, I have Taiwan this week 
syndrome every time <laughs> I come to this show, probably because we talk about, broadly speaking, the same issues. And, and uh, I'm being humorous, facetious, facetious. But, but I'm also being serious in the sense that uh, a year from now, two years from now, three and a half years from now, when we go into the next presidential election, we will be talking about the same issues, right? We will be talking about China-Taiwan relations. And, and I don't need crystal balls to predict that one, Gavin, right? We will definitely be talking about China-Taiwan relations over the next few years. We will be talking about some example where the public is unhappy with policy execution by some ministry, whether it's the education ministry or the transportation and communications ministry or the National Communications Commission, or there'll be something that makes the public happy. And they'll say, oh, the minister's not doing his or her job well. And there'll be Kuomintang or New Power Party or maybe Taiwan People's Party legislators who will be smacking the table, mad at some minister or deputy minister. They don't like their answers. There'll be some country that breaks off diplomatic <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here, Gavin, and say some of those remaining 14 plus the Vatican will de-recognize the Republic of China sometime in the next four years. And we'll be talking about it. We'll be saying, oh, how awful China is. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, well, their spokesman will say how awful China is. And, and, and the president will say how awful China is. Uh, and unfortunately, there'll be the sad stories that, that we sometimes talk about, whether it's transportation accidents. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, we have these, sometimes we have these grisly murders. We don't have a lot of crime in Taiwan, but we get these nutcases who just, you know, murder someone on the street or some some such thing. Um, so we're going to be talking about the same issues. And, and Gavin, that's why I I have, I have um, Taiwan This Week derangement syndrome after every episode that I come on. Apparently, the uh, apparently the head of the Division of Psychiatric Care at the Zhongshan Medical University Hospital is being quoted as saying that the best remedy for post-election syndrome is to self-correct by staying away from political short talk shows on the radio and television. Except this one. We want people to listen to this one. <laughs> Religiously, yeah, we'll every week. <laughs> But, of course, Brian, you had during election syndrome where you threw an energy drink across the table during your live broadcast. Well, I scaled it by accident, but it could have been, uh, you know, an unconscious thing, an unconscious cry for help by knocking over this energy drink during my uh, election live stream. You had the shakes, maybe. That's right. That's right. Too, the much, jitters. too much energy too much, drink. Too much energy drink. Yeah. Three coffees in a row and then an energy drink. Unfortunately, yeah. That anyway, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. Who's not drinking an energy drink in the studio today. And Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. Who's not got crystal balls. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. Now, there won't be a show next Friday, January the 24th, as it'll be the Lunar New Year's Eve here in Taiwan, and we'll all be on holiday preparing to celebrate the Year of the Rat. But we'll be returning on January the 31st. And don't forget in the meantime to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.